Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. I'm your host, Bradley Jay. And uh, in our quest to m- better appreciate what we have here in the Boston area, we have Robert Bob Ellison here, professor and former chair, right? Former, former chair. Former chair. Department of History, Suffolk. You're teaching over there. No more management. That's and right. you're involved with the USS Constitution Museum, yes. Board of Trustees, and much more. Leader of a group called Rev 250, a group that's involved in reenactments of events leading up to the American Revolution. Yes. I did it. I, I you didn't, did it. I didn't even read it. That is great. Didn't read that's, much. That's impressive. So one thing we have around here is the, the emerald necklace. And I, I hope you folks don't take it for granted because it is a beautiful thing which adds a, a great deal of quality to our lives. And we're going to talk about the necklace and its designer and creator, Frederick Law Umstead. Let's start with, yes. uh, well, actually, all the sections, Bob, of the of the necklace. I know a few, but can you tell me where where yeah. they all are? Yeah, well, essentially, it begins at Boston Common, which is the oldest public park in the United States, and then we have the um, public garden which was started in the 1830s as a botanical garden, a botanical garden that is open 24 hours a day, every day of the year for free to the public. And then you walk down the Commonwealth Avenue Mall, which traverses the Back Bay, this neighborhood created out of landfill in the 19th century, really made to be an elegant neighborhood like the the American Paris. And then you get to the Fenway. And this is really the beginning of the engineered part that Olmsted created you know, there's a statue of Leif Erikson looking toward the Charles Gate. Now there's an overpass there. It wasn't always there, but you take a left onto the Fenway. There's a beautiful... Okay. Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, I was just okay. saying, okay, I'm trying to follow you. Yeah. So you get to the end of Comev, yeah. and then you kind of yeah, take, take a, a left, take left, and you go over the yeah. generals, or whatever the memorial bridges, and you get to the Victory Gardens, and that's yes. where it picks up again. Well, yeah, yeah, in that area, uh, the corner of Boylston Street and the Fenway, there is actually a memorial to John Boyle O'Reilly, but that bridge that takes Boylston Street over the Muddy River was designed by H.H. H. Richardson, the great 19th century architect who did Trinity Church and really created the Richardsonian Romanesque as the style. And that was meant to give you a view down of the Muddy River and of this landscaped area. Actually, that's actually the beginning of the Back Bay Fens. Fens is a marsh. 
And this area looks completely natural, but it was all completely man-made, engineered by Frederick Law Olmsted. And then you walk through the Fenway, where the Victory Gardens are, also the World War II Memorial, and then you get to the Riverway, near where the Landmark Center is. And in fact, that little stretch there across from the Landmark Center was covered over until just about a couple of years ago. They realized there was a flooding problem, so they opened up the river there, and then you continue on down the Riverway to Olmstead Park, Jamaica Pond, and then from Jamaica Pond to the Arnold Arboretum, and then from the Arboretum to Franklin Park, and initially, Olmsted's vision called for continuing this down Columbia Road to Marine Park in South Boston. Marine Park, he designed in the 1890s, but Columbia Road, actually, the Walsh administration wants to green Columbia Road. To fill in that, that gap? Yeah, fill in that gap. So that would be the, the necklace encircling the city. Well, that's good. Yeah. I hope he is able to so do I. fill yeah. in that gap. So do I. And you mentioned the the newly renovated section between... Well, there's, there's a little part of the muddy where you can walk near Longwood. Yes. And you come up to where the Sears building is. Mm-hmm. And that was where the new part is. They yeah. they dredged that, and it's it kind of stopped there before, right? Yeah, it did, yeah. And so they continued it with two little bridges. Mm-hmm. And well, I do wish they'd landscape it better. Yeah. Right? That, well, yeah, yeah it needs It's just a bunch of weeds. Yeah, because the rest was landscape. I mean, Olmsted really created this using natural plants. He wanted to create, he did it for a couple of reasons. Um, that was a huge public health problem there, two, two big problems. One, uh, the, you had the Stony Brook, which runs from Turtle Pond in, uh, and then through Roxbury, big brewing area in the 19th century, also a big sewage dump. And so you had the Stony Brook, and the Stony Brook was put into a conduit, and so that causes flooding in basements and overrun and other problems. And it gets into the fens, this marshy area where it joins with the muddy river. And so A, it would flood, and then B, it was filthy, uh, breeding ground for typhoid, other things. So the city really needed to do something about this. And they had a competition. They had about 20, and they had um, various people come up with designs, and uh, 23 designs submitted to do something about this. And Olmsted was asked to be a judge, and he refused. He said he didn't want to judge the competition. He didn't even enter the competition. But then they had a winning design. A guy named Grundle, who was a uh, florist, did what they thought was a nice design, and they asked Olmsted to look at it. And Olmsted said, well, it doesn't solve the two problems. One is drainage and, uh, you know, getting the sewage out of here. And then two is flooding. And so they gave Olmsted, and the city engineer agreed, and they gave Olmsted $6,000 to design something else. And so what Olmsted did in the Fenway area was to create essentially a 30-acre holding lagoon for the Stony Brook. And that is going to solve Part of the problem, also a couple of conduits. So is that there now? It is there now. Wh- that's, that's where the, is it? That's the Fenway. That's what you walk past when you're walking through the park and you see this nice body of water. Okay. You're right. That's actually designed to be a holding tank okay. for the Stony Brook. And also, you might have noticed a couple of stone buildings kind of across from uh, the MFA and Northeastern in that area. And actually, now the... Um, the Conservancy, the uh, Emerald Necklace Conservancy, has their headquarters there. Those were designed as the gatehouses for the conduit that carries the Stony Brook into this area. Where's the Stony Brook again? The Stony Brook, roughly under Columbus Ave, and near where the um, Columbus Ave and the New Orange Line go, uh, that way, and 
you're going up toward West Roxbury. Oh, and Turtle there's Pond. a Stony Brook Orange Line stop, right? Exactly. Okay. And that, yeah. And actually where the Ruggles stop is, that's okay. where the conduit goes under there carrying the Stony Brook from Columbus Ave to the Fenway. So really near where the, the MFA is, you have this brook. And Stony Brook was a huge industrial area. In fact, they used the water for brewing. And you may you still see some of those buildings in Roxbury, the old breweries that were built in the 19th century when there was a big Irish population and German population, two groups that are known for, for, uh, for liking beer. And Boston had a lot of breweries there. In fact, a couple now are being turned into condos. And actually, there are some microbreweries beginning to operate in that area. Do people repurpose the names of those old breweries? Oh, yeah. Those, yeah. What were a couple of them, or the, one, even one? Well, the Boston Beer Company was one. Okay. And uh, Haffenreffer was another one. And so the Haffenreffer is now a condo development, I believe. But, you know, Boston Beer Company is what um, Jim Cook's, you know, they produce Samuel Adams, not the same company. And um, so, yeah, uh, Boston had a lot of breweries. And, you know, beer didn't travel very well. So you were better off having locally made beer than having it shipped from Milwaukee or some other far distant place. And so Boston had a big brewing industry before prohibition okay my friends with this topic since it's local so very local and um i don't know special i would like to go ahead and invite you to call join us do you enjoy the emerald necklace do you go down there do you have any stories relating to it you get on a jamaica pond you catch a fish there where do you hang out what has the emerald necklace done for you it does a lot for me because i'll walk down that mall on com f quite a lot um along the muddy quite a lot in the common all the time. So I thank you, Frederick Law. 617-254-1030. Join us, 617-254-1030. Hang out with Bob Allison and me at WBZ. Something's on your mind. You need to talk. Try the radio. Jay talking. Bradley J. Right until dawn. WBZ News Radio 1030. Oh, stewardess. I speak Jay. Oh, good. Tonight? Tonight. It's uh, after 12. Midnight, isn't it? After midnight, we're going to bring this night alive. I just felt it was important to communicate perfectly. After midnight, we're going to Jay Talk right to five. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. We're going to cause talk stimulation. We're going to have some conversation. We're going to lock busy on through the night. After midnight, we're on with Bradley J. All right. WBZ News Radio 1030. Here, Jay talking on, I believe it's a Wednesday. We're almost halfway through the week. We're with Bob Ellison talking about the the emerald necklace in Boston and uh, the history of it and what it means, the evolution of it, and maybe the future of it. Before we continue, or I guess we will continue with Paul in Braintree. Hey, Paul. Say hello, hello to Bob, and how are you doing, Paul? Hi, Bob. Hey, Paul. How are you? Good. I have a question. This was uh, in the news a couple of years ago that they were considering removing the ugly overpass that goes over the Muddy River across Commonwealth Avenue and down, I guess, to yep. Storrow Drive. It it really distorts what the Emerald Necklace was going to be, uh, and it's... Um, um, you know, it it's long uh, overdue to be removed. Uh, is that still uh, a consideration, if you know? 
I don't know, but that would be a great idea. I'm all for it. It's a super busy overpass. Yeah, it is a super. I don't so, know yeah. what they would do. Yeah, well, we did the big dig. We put that. Oh, put it underground. Yeah, put it underground. Put it under the water. All yeah, right. Yeah, Here's so, my yeah. hundred bucks or whatever. It only went in. It only they only built it. I think in the early '60s. Yeah. It's it's goes right by what used to be the old Somerset Hotel. Right. Right. Um, it's almost in its back corner. It's uh, less. I guess that's probably a condo. But it's you know it does transport people faster down there. But it. Uh, I guess that probably happened during the Collins administration yeah. uh, days when things went to the highest bidder or kickback, whichever is more appropriate. I think that's a great anyway, idea. And it wouldn't be that big a deal to dig a ditch and put the road down there. Not like the yeah. big dig. Yeah. And then you, too, you look at yeah, the way. And, yeah. No, go on, Paul. Go ahead. No, no, that's it. I'm, no, so yes, because Olmsted really designed this with uh, trees separating the park from the roadways. This is before the era of the automobile that he designed this, knowing there would be carriage roads along the Fenway and along the riverway, but separated from the park by these big trees to screen you know, both from the other. But also if you're driving along in a carriage, you have these nice trees along the route. And then inside the park, a walking trail as well as a bridle path, which are still there. And all of the paths were, as we were not, uh, they weren't paved. They were like cinders and so a natural pathway, thinking that people in the city should have access to these natural spaces. And actually today, uh, the Walsh administration is proud of the fact that we are the second major city to have every Bostonian that is within a 10-minute walk of a park. And that's also part of Olmsted's vision, getting parks to where people are. These are the lungs of the city. So in areas that were being very highly developed in the 19th century, like you know Roxbury, the Fenway, you have these beautiful parks traversing them, so you don't need to drive a long way to have experienced nature, and you can walk through them as part of your daily routine. It, well, it's wonderful that we have it, and I guess well, he did Central Park, which I guess was a, a swamp and a dump as yeah. well. In yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, Olmsted designed so, uh, Central Park, yeah. It, uh, well, I, I hope that someone will consider taking that uh, overpass down and Restoring, you can see. I, I believe it's the Muddy River yes. that's right below yeah, it. it is. Yes. And and I think that the the overpass has also caused problems of the of the flow of the Muddy River right there. Yes, uh, interferes with its flow of water. Yeah, it I, does. Does it that does. flow into the Charles River from that does. there? Yeah, right is that there. Where the, it goes. And true, when Olmsted designed it too, he um, kind of hid where the Muddy River flows into the Charles. It goes through a conduit, and there are big boulders he put there kind of to mask that this is the Muddy River entering. And a couple of conduits carry much of the Muddy Rivers underground in these pipes, of the Muddy River and the Stony Brook, both carried by these conduits, so you're not seeing them. As I was saying earlier, this really was a swampy area, you know, area. people threw garbage in, sewage in, so the design is meant to clean it up. And then the plantings, the landscaping around it, Olmsted really wanted to make it look like a natural New England salt marsh. And in fact, when it was designed in the 1890s, the, the Charles River still was a tidal area. They hadn't put the dam up yet. So it was a salt marsh with the, the grass, as you would see, and then that attracted the native birds. Actually, um, Olmsted was kind of in a lifelong feud with... Um, Charles Sprague, who was the director for about 50 years of the Arnold Arboretum, and Sprague was in charge of the um, Brookline side of the Fenway, and Olmsted was in charge of the Boston side. So the Boston side only had native plants, and Sprague liked to introduce other things. You know, he was in charge of the Arnold Arboretum, which does have plants from all over the world. So you could see, if you were in Brookline, if they had 
um, things from China. And if you were in Boston, they only had things from New England. And this, of course, creates a problem, the fact that the Muddy River is the dividing line between Brookline and Boston. In the 1970s, someone who moved to Boston and was really attracted to this park, even though it was really in tough shape. Boston had neglected her parks for much of the 20th century, since really the 1920s and 30s, and they're in a state of decline. So she's walking her dog in this beautiful park and wonders why the city isn't doing something. So she calls Brookline and says, you know, well, how come this park is so poorly maintained? And Brookline says, well, that's Boston. So she calls Boston, and they say, well, that's Brookline. They couldn't agree. So what happens, actually, this is really the evolution of the Emerald Necklace Conservancy, a group of advocates who want to take care of it. Similar thing happens with the Franklin Park Coalition. That is a private group that gets together to advocate for these parks, the way you're doing, advocating for taking down the um, overpass. Yeah. Does the conservancy... Wait, one final question. Is, is the, the tall grass in the in the Fenway that that's six feet tall, or maybe it's not that high, mm-hmm. was that something that, that Olmsted had planted? Actually not, because Olmsted put in salt grass, and when the Charles River no longer was a salt marsh, they no longer had salt water in it, the salt plants died, so they had to replant it. And this was actually done by one of Olmsted's successors, Arthur Shirtcliffe, who the city hired in the 19-teens and 20s. This is after Olmsted was out of the picture, because they realized the salt marsh no longer was working, and so something had to be done in the teens. So they... So that would have been the 20s when uh, Arthur Shirtcliffe took over the um, running the park. Fascinating program. Thank you, Bradley. Thank, Another great thanks, program. Paul. Thank you, Paul. Anybody Have else? That's great. No, this conservancy. Yes. Are they? Are you tight with them? Do you know? I'm not really tight with them. I are they advocating for the depression of that overpass? Well, they, maybe they should be. That could be, I think, a good project for them. Is the, is the mayor even thinking about that? I don't know if the mayor's thinking about it. The mayor's very much thinking about parks. And the, you know, the All right. Park, you know, Chris do Cook, you, the park uh, commissioner, is on the Do you have the mayor's ear? I don't have the mayor's ear. I mean, Chris Cook responds to my emails periodically, but, you know, I don't have the mayor's ear. But I think take, taking down that expressway, that— Well, tell them we talked about it. We, and, we don't say that, that the people seemed very anxious to get that— the phones were lighting up. Yeah, the phones to did light yes. a little. Yes, but uh, that—that's a a crime having that there. It's, it it is. cuts the emerald necklace in half. It does. It, yeah, it actually harms the right. It 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 stops the flow of the water from yeah. the muddy to getting into the Charles. It does. Yeah, yeah. What and were they the, thinking back then? Well, they really weren't thinking. They were thinking about how do we move people. This is the same thinking, time, you know. Damn nature. Yeah, Storo Drive too. Remember, the Esplanade was built along the Charles River as this beautiful park, and the Storo Drive takes about a third of it. Now, you know, I drive on Storo Drive, so I kind of like having the traffic flowing. But on the other hand, the park was put there for a reason, and I think we we tend to be more pragmatic and think, uh, yeah, we're not going to look at these trees, so. You know, we want to be able to move quickly to get to our next destination. Now, the trees along the Jamaica Way, was that one of his carriage, carriage roads? Yes, yeah. And you mentioned that the park and the carriage roads were separated by trees, and yes. there they are. There's yeah. trees on both sides. He liked to have his carriage roads lined with trees on both sides. He did, and winding. So you're and actually it, it doing It does this. wind. Yeah, and... In this area, this is before the era of the automobile when we're designing these things for carriage roads. So you would take a Sunday drive or an afternoon drive along these roads in your carriage. Most people weren't getting to work driving a carriage. So this is really a leisure activity as opposed to a commuting activity. Uh, Although at the same time, Franklin Park, these other parks are being built. We are 
building trolleys and other ways of getting people to work. I mean, it's the reason so many people are moving to Roxbury, Dorchester, because we have access to public transportation. And so these parks are essential, but it's the leisure activity that Olmsted is really looking at rather than how do we get from point A to point B. I mean, he's interested in how the water gets from point A to point B. Less, and in the Central Park, too, he designed with kind of winding roads through them that Robert Moses, when he became the city planner in the 20th century, really straightened out. You know, Boston's Parks Department was actually the first city planning agency. And they did a pretty good job planning, better than some of the planning agencies we have spawned since. And this is in the 1860s, 1870s, having a city agency to plan the development of parks as the city really was thinking about this as an integral feature of life in the city. So is that, are any of the trees, original trees, planted back then? Yes, they That's are. That's cool. I, I can't tell you, I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. For fear you'll go out and cut them down to count the rings and see how old they are. Yeah, but those trees, and the Arnold Arboretum has some really old trees, as, as does Franklin Park. And Olmsted really designed Franklin Park. The He didn't like the zoo. He had thought, okay, maybe have domestic or local animals, like bears or rabbits and things. The time, <laughs> he wouldn't have been happy with the lions. He was the all about local. He was about local. And so the area where the zoo is was the greeting. That's where you would come and greet friends and uh, basically walk around. And then there was the overlook, which, uh, and actually there was a clubhouse there, and that's where Elma Lewis had her dance studio. And Duke where was the overlook? If you're familiar with the big playing field where periodically the Boston Symphony plays or other things, there's like a rocky ledge overlooking it. And if you're at the back entrance to the zoo in the park, you're actually looking down a wide grassy area. To the right, there's a wooded area where the old bear dens are, and to the left is the overlook. And if you keep looking, you'll see Schoolboy Stadium, uh, White Stadium, where Boston Latin plays its games. You know, I've never been to the Franklin Park Zoo. You've never been to is the Franklin Good? It's a good zoo, a very good zoo. It's come a long way. You know, it was uh, always threatened with closure and yeah. so on, but they have the um, the uh, gorillas and the lions. They have gorillas now still? They do, they do have gorillas now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. 
I had no idea. Yeah. I learned something most days. I guess we should switch to uh, Olmsted the Man. Olmsted the Man. I know some. Yeah. I guess he was born in Connecticut. He was born in Connecticut and a you know, farming family. He was going to go to Yale, but he had eye problems because of sumac poisoning. I wanted to talk about sumac poisoning yeah, yeah. I, when I was a kid. I heard about it. Yeah. You never hear about sumac yeah, poisoning no. now, but they had sumac at my grandfather's house, and I never knew if it was poison wow. sumac or not. I was always afraid of it. Then I thought that I must have been wrong, that sumac poisoning was a thing. But then I, tonight I saw that Olmsted yeah. has got sumac poison. How do you get sumac poisoning? I guess is it like is poison it, ivy? It is like, exactly like poison ivy, poison oak, these other kinds of natural things that can poison you, and that hurts his eyes, and so instead of going to college, he goes to sea. He was going to go to Yale. Yeah. All yeah. set to go to Yale. All set to go to Yale. But and he's like, whoops, I have sumac poison. Yeah, yeah, so bad eyes. And so he heads out to sea, and he actually goes to China, goes to Guangzhou, and he's really impressed there with the, A, big urbanization. I mean, this is one of the most densely populated places in the world, as well as this really cultivated landscape, uh, the pagodas and so on. And that's something that intrigues him. And so he comes back, and he does... Um, gets a farm and does farming for a bit, and then he becomes a journalist. And he uh, writes one of the most important anti-slavery books in the 1850s. He travels through the southern states, and it's really about the inefficiency of slavery as an economic system. Uh, it's not the brutality, the horror. It's really this is an inefficient way of doing things. And then he also gets into landscape planning. This is when he begins the process. He's hired to really design Central Park in New York to create this huge park in the middle of this expanding city, this area that, um, you know, Paul was saying was swampy, trash dump, and, you know, really making this park. And that's a big vision to have. That was his first thing? His first thing, a central park, yeah. He must have been an impressive person to get these gigs. He must have, yeah. And then he moves to Boston. In fact, he lives in Brookline. His um, house in Brookline, studio in Brookline, is now part of this national park, the Olmsted, Frederick Law Olmsted National Historical Site, and they do have his various plans and things. And so he creates this landscape architecture firm, and he design, designs parks all over the country, in Buffalo, New York, in San Francisco, um, parks that have become pretty well-known as Olmsted parks. That is, they have these features of you know local landscaping and engineering being hidden, but they are all have a certain purpose to them. And so, and then he um, gives up the practice in the 1890s. His his mental health is failing. In fact, he had been one of the designers of McLean, or he proposed a design for McLean, the asylum. And in 1895, he moves to McLean because he's now retiring from business, and he notices that they had not designed it the way he had suggested. He said they didn't follow my design. Confound them. And he spends the last uh, decade or so of his life at McLean. And meanwhile, his two sons, John and Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., take over the firm. And so there are Olmsted parks designed into the 20th century by the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, who use the same name. And the and Jr. went to Roxbury Latin. I believe so, yeah. And Harvard and all. Yeah, yeah. yeah went yeah, that yeah. route. That's right. That yeah. route. He avoided the sumac. Do you think that... There are any descendants of the Olmsteads out there? Do you know of any? Do you oh, run, there are. run there, into I, them? I, I haven't run into them, but I am sure they there are. They have to be out there. Maybe they're listening right Maybe now. They are. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, you saw it. Dolly, I think that I saw Dolly call. Dolly, you called, and then you hung up. What's up with that? We need you to, well, just said hi. Oh, jeez, okay. We have jo Joe in Stoughton. 
Hello, Joe. Hi, it's Jim. Jim, what's hey, Jim. going on, Jim? My fault. Uh, it's okay. I have a question for your guest. Um, if he can talk about, you were talking about Franklin Park Zoo and the park itself a few minutes ago. If he can talk about the uh, pudding stone, yes, all the stonework in that area, yeah. um, whatever you know about it, in particular, where was it mined? Where was the quarry? Well, it would have been anywhere. I mean, there are natural oh, really? there are okay. natural outcroppings of pudding stone all over Roxbury. In fact, that's how Roxbury gets its name from these rocks. Yeah, and it's called the yes. Roxbury conglomerate, and it's like you know, stone—the little pieces of stone that are then pressed together by a glacier by pressure—and it makes this really beautiful stone. And so there are a number of churches, like the Elliott Church in Roxbury, is made with the pudding stone. And um, at what point did they change the rocks to X? Well, actually, that at, at the same time, it was Roxburgh, and then, yeah, they, I think it was just... Why wouldn't it be R-O-C-K-S? Actually, it was R-O-X, almost from the beginning. And they, now it's it's R-O-X, right? Or it is R-O-X, and it was R-O-X pretty much from the beginning. Oh, yeah, but it's, Rock, it's funny they would make in this, that change. Well, in this, just, in it seven, sounds like a modern thing, like it does Xmas. Sound, yeah, it does sound like a modern thing, but, you know, in the 17th century, you know, they were handwriting everything. Roxbury. So, you know, we we shorten a lot of things, okay. too, even though we have the greater technology. But wow. that, yeah, there's another park. Um, it's now actually Malcolm X Park in Roxbury. That is a beautiful putting stone outcroppings. But yeah, in Franklin Park, this is really such a defining feature. And the towers there are also made of the pudding stone. Because when you yeah. cut it, it has uh, really beautiful, because you have these variety of stones that are then are shining through. But that would have been mined pretty much everywhere in Roxbury. And they were actually in the 17th and 18th century, they really were using it to make walls and foundations. It's not until the 19th century that they really start making buildings out of it because it wasn't seen as being, well, they could make bricks and pile them up. I think it might have been harder to cut this rock and then uh, make uh, buildings out of the rock until the 19th century. But yeah, beautiful rock. When was, uh, when was Olmsted out of the picture? You said 1910? No, 1893 is really when he retires, mid-1890s, and then he dies sometime around 1904, 1905. But then his sons, okay. as I said, continue the firm. Right. Well, thank oh, you, Jim. So there was no actual uh, quarry. It was. Well, it was the, too common. Yeah, the, yeah. The, there were, you could have probably could have dug it up just about anywhere. There probably were yeah. quarries for it. That yeah. That it's not like they're mining granite in Quincy or um, that, that where you do have to dig way down because it's there right on the surface. Right, and right. often, uh, okay, well, very an, good. Yeah, another Go church, ahead. another church made from it is, of course, Mission Church, which is, and that was quarried right on the site. The Catholics would make would usually quarry right on the site, getting whatever stone was there to make their building. And they they, they would cut it, process it right there on the site. Yeah, yeah. Wow, great. Thanks, okay. Jim. Thanks for calling, Jim. Right. Where's, Mission, where's Mission Church? Mission Church. That is on Mission Hill. Mission Hill. Okay. Yeah, That's yeah. that big. The big one with the two spires. Two spires. That is a stunning church. It is a stunning church. One of those church. things that I t- have taken for granted for, yeah. you know, and kind of until now, until I have recently, since October, I realized, started really? walking. Really? And walking around gave me my city back, yep. or it gave yep. me my city for the first time. I've been to places like Somerville that I really didn't get to know. Somerville. Yeah. Well, Tell me more about Olmsted. He, he did some other stuff. You mentioned he was a journalist. Yeah. Talk about the gold mining. Well, so he goes out to California during the gold rush to try to find gold. And 
doesn't, but he does design Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. And really, so why does a designer like that need to go panning for gold? Were, were people really making that much money? I don't think they were. Well, you, if you if you strike gold, you're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, so why not? I mean, he had been running a farm in Connecticut. So would you rather run a farm in Connecticut or find gold in California? When did he do Golden Gate Park? Was that after his his Central Park and his Boston? Yeah, yeah, that would have been in the 1870s, 1880s. And what happens in the 20th century is a lot of urban parks go into a state of decline and actually. In the early, late 1980s, early 1990s, um, someone in Buffalo, where there's an Olmstead Park, realizes that there's this Olmstead Park, the city's not maintaining it. In fact, there's a plan to develop it, to develop the land, because we can sell the land for, to improve the tax base. And so she contacts the other cities where there are Olmstead Parks and creates this National Association of Olmstead Parks. And... It's part of this whole movement then to try to preserve what we have and appreciate what we have because for most of the 20th century, you know, we pretty much had ignored parks and saw them as just, they're nice things, but are they really essential to the life of the city? And the understanding is, yeah, they really are essential. It's one of the things, these, the emerald necklace is certainly something that makes Boston distinct. It's something that we have that we really should take good care of. You know, if there are any extremely influential and rich folks, any philanthropists with lots of power, we have two projects for you. Number one, to this is the number number one's the easy one, to landscape that what they have done with the Muddy River near the old Sears building, because it's just kind of weeds growing up. The other thing is, what we want to get the the overpass, the overpass, yeah, yeah. depressed at yeah. The, that goes between Comav and the the Victory Garden, yeah. Let's, yeah. get, let's get that done right get away. Down. Yeah, yeah. That would be a good project because it would improve that area. And, in fact, another thing that the city realized with the development of the parks, that parks improve property values, that the, pro the properties along the park were valued more highly than those a block away or two blocks away or three blocks away. So they saw this as really a civic improvement that was going to benefit and not just the people around the park, but everyone who had access right. to it. And also cleaning up the waterways was going to prevent the spread of typhoid, other diseases. So it really was forward thinking yeah. on the part of the city to appropriate money to get this and then hire someone to actually landscape it. So was this private property? Obviously private property before and the city had to buy it up? Some of it was and some of it wasn't. You know, some of Franklin Park, Franklin Park was actually the West Roxbury Park. You know, West Roxbury had broken off from Roxbury. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thinking Roxbury was becoming too urban. Then Roxbury was annexed to Boston. West Roxbury was annexed to Boston. He had this big park. And some of it was privately owned. And then the city does buy up the land, actually using some of the bequests from Benjamin Franklin in 1890 to buy up the land, which is why it's called Franklin Park. And it is the geographical center of the city of Boston. And other was private property. But if you're along this riverway, like the Muddy River or Stony Brook, you 
probably would want to have something done with it. And you wouldn't be, you know, houses weren't right on the river because the river floods uh, and the river would back up. And essentially the river was used as a sewer. So who would want to be right along it? So there's actually more building along the Fenway after the um, park is developed. In fact, it's one of the, another little known fact, Fenway Park is named for the Fenway, not the other way around. So imagine a world where, or a town or city where they hadn't no. built the green necklace. Yes. It, it would be way too late now because there would be no going back. It would be all privately owned, yep. big houses, buildings, and we would not have that. It would just be yep. choking dust and awful. It would be, yeah. Uh, and it would be flooding and backing up. Any way to increase the parkland? Does, does the city own buildings that are run down and they could just knock them down and put a park? I know that the city likes to generate tax revenue when they yeah, can. They do, yeah. But there's also quality of life. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd like, I'd much rather see some really cool public gardens and public spaces and green spaces made with. Some of the city land. Yeah. The city, I, there's a lot of it, right? Yeah, there is. The, and the city is actually doing this. I have to say that the Parks Department really is looking at ways of increasing our access to open space and to green spaces. Um, this initiative to make sure everyone has a park within a 10-minute walk and uh, extending Columbia Road from Franklin Park to through actually through a part of Dorchester and Roxbury that is doesn't have a lot. A park within space. a 10-minute walk. Everyone, yeah. is that really true? Well, that's what they say, and uh, I'm not... Let's think. Yeah. How about, well, if you're in the North End? Yeah. Is there, I mean, I guess it depends on how yeah. you define park. Well, right now they are redoing Christopher Columbus Park, or the Prado, that stretch from and the... Uh, okay, good for them. ...from Hanover Street to Old North Church. And... You know, green spaces, you could count, there's a little the steps overlooking the site of the molasses flood on Hull Street. and, and That's that, a, does that count? I, I don't know. And then of course, then of course, there is a Pupilo Park along the waterfront where you have, there's a baseball field and there's a bocce ball court and a hockey rink and a swimming pool. You know, so there's that one. There's also a nice little green space along the, um, it's off Hanover Street. Anyway, yeah, so, so there are small parks. Um, How many parks do you think there are? That I don't know. That's a good question. You get, should get Chris Cook on here. He knows okay. the city's park. Because it would be fun to resolve to visit every one of them. It would be. There are probably 100 of them, right? There must be more than 100. More than 100. I, I mean, I it could, it's doable, but that would be kind of cool. It would be, yeah. All right. Any, any idea where, what laws, excuse me, Olmsted's uh, underlying theory was about green spaces and why they were important? Yeah, they're important as a place for people to breathe, people to get out of crowded tenements and just experience nature, walk through nature, have that experience of nature, and doing it just as a regular thing. So making this accessible to everyone in a crowded city. And Boston's population was really skyrocketing in the late 19th century, 100,000 more people every 10 years for the course of about 30 years. In fact, Boston's population in 1900 was bigger than it is today. Wow. Increasingly crowded. And if you think about people had big families, so I'm told that the North End was actually more crowded than Calcutta in in this period. And South Boston, Dorchester, you know, the rise of triple-deckers and 
um, lots and lots of people, lots and lots of kids, and just having this open space he thought was essential to preserve the character of people. And it's an idea that he really is able to develop here in Boston more successfully than in other cities. As I said, he spends the last you know, 40 years of his life in Boston, although he is doing commissions in other parts of the country and the world. And it's an idea that Boston really embraces and New England embraces. In fact, in the 1880s, we create the Metropolitan District Commission, which is going to oversee parkland not just in the city of Boston, but in the surrounding area. So the Middlesex Fells and the Lynn Woods and the Blue Hills and other of these parks created in kind of an outer ring around the city. And the MDC, which is the forerunner of today's Department of Conservation and Recreation, was so proud of this achievement that in 1900, they sent as an example of this a one-ton plaster model of the parks surrounding metropolitan Boston to the World's Fair in Paris, to the Paris Exposition. This is, we're showing off something we have here, designing these parks. That's cool. It is. It's a great thing. I'm told that that exists somewhere, that plaster model, that the DCR still has it somewhere in storage. It really is something, you know, I'd like to see. You know, and no one will cop to where it is. No one will. They keep saying, oh, yeah, I saw that, and I think so-and-so has it, and uh, um, maybe we should be more persistent. We'll get the, we'll, we're going to get that uh, arch, that the um, overpass down, Yeah. and we're going to get the landscaping we done. We have a lot and, on our and, plate. And, yeah, we do have a lot on our plate. This is just our, an hour, and uh, look at all the work we've created for a ourselves. A little bit, we have a little bit of time if we can to uh, maybe give any, any stories about Olmsted? Any anecdotes to make us understand his personality? Because I can't really get a handle on his personality. He seems like he seems kind of grumpy and serious, but he then but he did go gold mining. I don't know. Yeah, what, yeah. And you think he seems grumpy and serious? He's a landscape designer. He's able to work with the uh, Tammany Hall politicians in New York to get Central Park built. And with the political establishment in Boston over the course of about 30 years to build the emerald necklace, you know, think if you're just a grumpy, overly serious guy, you're not going to be able to do that. But he is able to work with these folks who all have really a vested interest. In fact, you know, one of the mayors of Boston was actually charged with uh, overcharging when the city wanted to purchase land to develop a park, you know, Mayor Hart, Thomas N. Hart. Um, and, yeah, the price would definitely go up when a parcel looked like it was going to be used for parkland. And, but Olmsted is able to navigate all of this in a way that um, is admirable. So he had to be easy and easygoing enough to get along, but he had to be tough, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, and not tear up his plans if he didn't like the way they were looking at him. So, folks, uh, it's out there, the Emerald Necklace, and all you well, got to do is in, enjoy it. Go out and enjoy and take care of it. Join the uh, Conservancy and the Friends and the Franklin Park Coalition, and uh, advocate for the park. If if, I, if we join, well, if I join the Conservancy, maybe I'll have more clout trying to get that overpass depressed. That definitely would be a good step. Now we have like three minutes just to remind folks about your museum, the museum you're on the board of, USS Constitution yes. Museum. Yes. What's the, in there? Well, we have actually. You can go in. You can. Um, Simulate climbing a mast and furling sails and uh, scrubbing the deck. And they um, tell you about the ship's travels. In fact, uh, in June, we'll be doing an event commemorating the world cruise of the 1840s. 
and they do other events like that. It's really a great museum where you can experience life at sea. And what would life have been like if you were, say, a sailor in the 19th century? Well, we talk about almost like going to China. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge thing. That had to take, what, four months? Something like that. And in fact, Olmsted was three months to England, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Olmsted was in China at the same time Constitution was in China in the 1840s. That is, the ship goes around the world. And so it would take, um, it's more than four months. Did he get to meet up with the people on the Constitution? Like some Probably not then. Probably not. It would have been nice to think of that, but no, he doesn't. But he is there. He's observing China. They're observing China. And so it is an amazing ship now back in the water and open for tours every day. The sailors from the USS Constitution are giving tours every day to um, visitors. So it's well worth seeing. And well, every morning at 8 a.m. they fire the guns and then at sunset they fire a gun as they, they raise the flag at 8 in the morning and lower the flag at sunset. And so you can hear the cannon fire every morning at 8 and every day when the sun goes down. Do you have events at the museum, or, or do you have fundraisers for the museum? Yeah, they do have fundraisers for the museum. They also do events, speakers, other things. So um, well worth seeing. And ussconstitutionmuseum.org is their website. And you can even become a member of that, too. You could easily become a member I'm going to be that. a joiner very soon. I You're going to be part of everything. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Robert Bob Ellison, who's uh, become a very good friend of Jay Talkin and a good friend to you, professor at Suffolk University. They're very lucky to have you. And uh, USS Constitution Museum Board of trustees, member, and leader of a group. We'll probably be back to talk more about events. Are there any events coming up with Rev 250? Not so much. Not right now. Okay. We are planning, hoping to have a pig roast uh, in August, probably in Dorchester somewhere, commemorating a pig roast in 1769, the Sons of Liberty put on. Okay. And I, as I told you, I recently have made my way into South Boston. I'm starting to hang around there now, so I have to get up to see... The sites, the evacuation day Dorchester sites. Heights. Dorchester fact, Heights. T- tomorrow we are having Community History Day in South Boston. We have Henry Knox, Phyllis Wheatley, sailors from Constitution, and school kids. Good, I need to meet Henry. I, yeah, love, Henry I love Henry Knox. You, you should have him on. All right, thanks, Bob. Take care. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.